0: Hello, everyone. I'm Paige Smith with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. You're listening to Climate Justice and Inequality, a Below the Radar series looking to highlight the systematic forces that try to undermine climate justice movements while forging towards a greener and more equitable world. For the fifth and final installment of this series, our host Am Johal is joined by Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, President of the Union of British Columbia Indian Chiefs, talking about indigenous land claims and intergenerational land defense. Enjoy the episode.
1: Welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. Uh, We're continuing with our climate change and inequality series, and we're very uh, fortunate to have Grand Chief Stuart Phillip with us this afternoon. We're recording this at the time that the federal election is going on, and this will be coming out shortly um, afterwards, and we'll get around to talking about that as well. But Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, Wondering if we can begin with you
2: introducing yourself uh, a little bit. My peace, Naxil, a Asiut. In our Incilichan language, that's simply good day, my dear friends and relatives. My traditional name is Asiut. I want to begin by expressing my appreciation and gratitude for the opportunity to have this important conversation. I have been involved in Indigenous issues for the better part of my adult life. I began uh, right about the time of Wounded Knee and down in the Dakotas uh, and the Cache Creek blockade. It was an armed blockade and Anishinaabe Park was happening in Kenora, Ontario, which was also an armed blockade of Indigenous land defenders and human rights activists. So I've had the long history of Political involvement. I had the incredible good fortune of meeting my wife Joan uh, 43 years ago. Uh, we've been married for 36 now. We had six adult children. Unfortunately, we lost Kenny to a car fentanyl overdose three years ago. It was on his 43rd or 42nd birthday rather. And we have 15 of the most beautiful grandchildren in the universe. Thank you, uh,
1: Grand Chief. I've I've met one of your your grandkids. We were driving from the Slocan, I think, to drop her off. Uh, I think it was the Sandman Inn because she was in town for a for a concert, <laughs> wondering. Uh, you mentioned a little bit historically how you got involved in in uh, political life, in uh, organizing, and in frontline demonstration. And in that period, you know, in the '60s, the civil rights movement. Uh, important movements like the American Indian movement um, happening at that time. Wondering if you can speak a little bit to that time period of organizing and how it formed and and shaped your own uh, long engagement with political struggle.
2: Well, to put it into historical context, uh, Wounded Knee was 73 and the Union of B.C. Indian Chiefs was formed in 1969. Those were politically volatile times. We had the anti-Vietnam War movement. We had the civil rights movement in the United States. There was the peace movement, the anti-nuclear movement. That was a time when the general population and particularly young people were politically active. The music of the time the lyrics on the song spoke to the need to achieve freedom, political freedom, and to fight tyranny and imperialism and all of the capitalism, all of the dark forces that are absolutely devastating and in too many cases lethal to the human rights of Indigenous peoples throughout the world. Uh, the American Indian Movement at the time was a very powerful force. They were the ones that defended the people at Wounded Knee and other actions in the U.S. And we had the presence of the American Indian Movement here in Canada, and British Columbia. And, of course, being a young man at the time with long hair, red headband, sunglasses... I got swept up into that Red Power movement. My wife, Joan, was also far more politically active than myself. She goes back to the Native Alliance for Red Power, which predates the American Indian Movement. And uh, she was at Frank's Landing, facing off with the National Guard in Washington State over fishing rights, and that activism culminated in the Bolt decision, whereby uh, Native people down there were awarded 50% of the the salmon in the Columbia River system. So again, it was, was incredibly politically active. The young people on university campuses got caught up in the social rights movement, and It was an exciting time back in those days, and there was a sense of hope and and so on and so forth. The Black Panthers were a powerful force in the U.S., and yeah, it was, uh, (laughs) you know, I, I still listen to music from those times because the lyrics were political and, you know, not what we have today. Interesting. Glenn Coulthard,
1: who teaches at UBC, is doing some writing on NARP, including the visit they did to China, which I think included Joan at that time in the in the 70s. It's a fascinating story. And I think they're archiving some, some documents from China, which is the notes that they took on that side of that trip. And I think they're getting some translations done. And recently in a in a class that I was teaching, we used George Manuel's book, The Fourth World, which has just recently been re-released and uh, such an important leader in terms of also connecting the Indigenous struggles here with the global struggles. And I'm wondering if you can speak to some of the leaders who you met at that time in the 70s as the issues with, you know, Cretians, white paper to other issues that were coming to the, the forefront.
2: Yes, um, as you mentioned, there was a Native People's Delegation to the People's Republic of China in the early 70s. And I'm proud to say Joan was the spokesperson of that group that went to China for a couple of weeks. Uh, China wasn't open to the West at that time. And it was, you know, an amazing trip for the, I, I believe there were 15 indigenous peoples that were part of that tour. Joan was also in Chiapas in the immediate aftermath of the Zapatista uprising. And she was gone for 10 days. And for many of those days, we lost communication uh, with her. And they were in the jungles, in the mountains down there. And uh, it was pretty scary for her to be there. And But Joan is, you know, she's so deeply committed to social justice matters. and. There was just no keeping her from, from going down there it's as yeah. dangerous as it was.
1: Grand Chief Stuart Phelps, there's been, I think, you know, obviously longstanding challenges around resource extraction, economic development on Indigenous lands at a time when government policies and processes remained uh, colonial, going back to the development of Whistler and ski hills all the way to the present day. And before I bring up some of the more recent issues, but wondering if you can talk about the period of the 70s to the 80s from ski hills to other places that were the sites of protest and pushing back against development that wasn't inclusive.
2: Well, those were the times um... Along the Fraser Canyon and up in Statlium territory, there were what was described as the fish wars that took place, where people were standing up for their constitutionally protected indigenous rights to fish. And Canada came down in a very heavy handed manner with choppers, RCMP assault teams. There was a lot of brutal suppression and brutal assaults of the fishermen that were continuing to stand up for their fishing rights. Uh, the White Paper came in in 1969. That was Trudeau Sr. and Jean Chrétien, who were the authors of that document. And it was clearly designed to subjugate and domesticate the uh, Indigenous peoples and oppose any notion um, of ours that we were still a sovereign people with inherent Indigenous rights and rights to land, rights to resources, rights to to hunt and fish. And there were landmark court cases uh, during that time. There was a Calder decision that Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who was Prime Minister, said just because a bunch of Uh, political might have been assert that they have rights doesn't necessarily make it so. And when the Nisca people won the Calder decision, he was approached by the press and asked, what do you think now? And he said, well, obviously they had more rights than we originally thought. And, you know, that was the battleground back in, in the early 70s. It was very clear in regard to the issues Um, it wasn't till over the space of time that the government became more devious and more insidious in terms of co-opting leadership and essentially buying people off buying indigenous people off with you know just uh, a minimalist approach to offering money for Indigenous people to engage in energy projects such as pipelines and and things of that nature, hydroelectric dams. And it's been a very long protracted struggle. On the one hand, Indigenous people, through the uh, Declaration on the Indigenous Rights of Indigenous People that was uh, embraced by the United Nations, The legislation both federally and provincially that acknowledges the declaration and what it represents. And on the other side, you have the oil and gas corporations and mining corporations working hand in glove with uh, governments to usurp the rights of Indigenous people and to criminalize our involvement in defending our lands and waters and our way of life. And and that's the struggle we have. We've had many Supreme Court decisions come down in our favor, such as the Chokotin decision, which actually acknowledged title on the ground. And and we have an interesting phenomenon now where, once again, similar to the 1970s, the young people are standing up and they're different than we were young people of today are, are brilliant, they're articulate, they're well-educated, and they're fearless. They don't carry the baggage of the residential schools. They're not afraid of all of us getting in trouble if we, you know, if we're bad, so to speak. So it's, it's so inspirational I remember um, about a year or so ago when they locked down the legislature. uh, Young Indigenous peoples from not only throughout BC, but from across Canada converged on the BC legislature and literally blocked all the doorways. Uh, The MLAs had to sneak into the legislature through underground passageways, you know, to be able to get into the into the legislature and and conduct business. And meanwhile, hundreds of Indigenous people were outside drumming and, you know, there was all kinds of lockdown going on and, and whatnot. So it could be heard inside. So I remember Premier Horgan was just absolutely outraged that there was nothing they could do about it. There was just too many people and their allies and supporters outside. And that went on for about 10, 12 days. So, you know, I have hope. Um, I'm a grandfather, as I indicated earlier. And and when I look behind, when I look over my shoulder, I see those legions of young people coming into their own. And uh, many of them carry the drum. They know their own songs, they know their own history their traditions and customs and, and so there is reason to hope when you consider the, the resurgence of the young people's voice, the strength of Indigenous women who have been in the front ranks of fighting, for, uh, fighting against violence against Indigenous women and girls. Our elders continue to support us and we ourselves now have legions of lawyers so it's um you know it's going to continue to be a long protracted struggle but just being around my own grandchildren that um are I believe from about 7 to 23 or thereabouts this span they're they're just so wonderful to to witness their free spirits and their ability to challenge authority and, and know and understand who they are and what their responsibilities to the land are. Grand
1: Chief, I'm wondering if you could uh, speak a little bit to the sort of, as governments, as you said, their processes have become a bit more insidious in how they engage with indigenous communities and nations. And in in some ways, the modern day treaty process, both from the provincial and federal governments, although some nations have engaged in that process, others have decided to go the route of the courts or more uh, frontline struggle. And I'm wondering if you could share sort of your critique of the, the treaty process that's ongoing in this context, in terms of what works with it and what is flawed inherently with the structure of that process?
2: Well, in many ways, the treaty process was completely eclipsed with the Dalgamuk decision, which described the full nature of our indigenous title and rights. And subsequent court decisions have further eclipse the treaty process whereby now it's not only possible it's happening where Indigenous groups can achieve greater progress and and results uh, through negotiations directly uh, with federal government and the provincial government in terms of resource management. We're moving to an area where In the not too distant future, our jurisdiction, our Indigenous jurisdiction, our inherent Indigenous jurisdiction will be fully acknowledged through legislation by both levels of government. That will give us the ability to have more than a significant influence in land management decisions. By way of example, the fire, Uh, The firestorms, the wildfires, Indigenous peoples are saying, if our jurisdiction was acknowledged, we wouldn't have wildfires. We had customs and traditions in regard to fuel management hundreds of years ago to ensure that uh, our villages didn't burn to the ground. And we don't have that. We've had a complete mismanagement of the forest resource by success of provincial governments, there has not been an inventory done in 30 or 40 years. The provincial government, in spite of all their rhetoric about working with Indigenous peoples, continue to issue permits to clear cut the landscape and including riparian areas. Ferry Creek is a prime example. My heart goes out to the courageous land defenders at Berry Creek. And I'm absolutely outraged at the police brutality that's taking place on the front lines where elders and seniors and women are being brutally assaulted by the RCMP officers present there. And there's been 800 arrests. Uh, we're not that far back from the Cleopatra Sound uh, issue a number of years ago. And again, the general public is realizing that governments uh, through their notion of amassing capital have absolutely devastated the environment through pipelines and mining and clear cutting and uh, the rampant pollution that goes forward unchecked. I think people are beginning to realize that we are in this together. And the the future of our grandchildren is at stake here and the future of the land itself. Um, I live in Penticton and there's been forest fires all around us all summer. And when I go outside and I smell the smoke, the strong smell of smoke, it's the smell of absolute colossal neglect on the part of our governments to caretake the forest lands So once our jurisdiction is recognized, that won't be happening anymore. Our policy towards uh, natural resource management is based on stewardship. It's a universal value that Indigenous peoples are given the responsibility to caretake the land and to defend Mother Earth.
1: Grand Chief, before I get into some more climate change related questions, one of the the parts that you mentioned was around the, the relationship to the police. You've had a long history while being the leader of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs on everything from the outfall of Gustafson Lake all the way to pushing for an inquiry around the Frank Paul situation, also the the treatment of protesters by the police. And wondering if you can speak to the kind of long relationship to the way governments have used policing towards Indigenous people.
2: Well, without question, the police community, so to speak, has deeply steeped in racist notions that somehow indigenous peoples Don't matter. There's been too many tragic cases where police agencies, RCMP, have shot and killed Indigenous peoples, not only here in British Columbia, but right across the country. And they do it with impunity. There are no consequences. You know, they should lose their pensions the minute they squeeze the trigger, regardless whether they wound the individual or, you know, unfortunately, kill them. But that doesn't happen. They get some kind of administrative sanction. Uh, The RCMP have this absolutely asinine, ridiculous code of conduct. And they tell us, well, it goes in their file and it's a very significant punishment, you know, which is absolute crap. These rogue officers simply get transferred to a different detachment where they continue on with their brutal racist tactics, it's absolutely appalling, and we need to continue to speak out against police brutality. We have the so-called wellness checks, and they just break into your home, and uh, on the guise of seeing if you're okay, and and they shoot people. You know, uh, how, how do they? Describe that as a wellness check, and it's happened on a number of occasions. And they have another policy called the no-knock policy, and they just kick your door down and come in and, you know, people get hurt, people get shot, and yet they get away with it. I remember in Seattle when John Thompson was shot and killed by the Seattle police officer. To begin with, they fired him the next day. And that doesn't happen here in Canada. It's absolutely outrageous. And I'm proud to say that women's groups, young people, have been speaking out against police brutality. I heard something absolutely outrageous the other day that the uh, RCMP pension funds has an investment in I can't remember what what it was, but it was oil and gas or forestry or or something along those lines. And here they are out on the front line protecting those corporate interests rather than keeping the peace. Uh, this is not the police force that we had, you know, decades ago where they understood their role is to keep the peace. Now they have the absolute uh, lethal paramilitary equipment in their arsenal and you know that's the face of policing in this country and the status quo governments the conservatives and the liberals they're okay with that you know that advances their own corporate interests in oil and gas and mining and you know the other activities that governments are too deeply ensnared in
1: Grant Chief, you've been, you know, very active as a spokesperson around everything from Unistotin to the Trans Mountain Pipeline, Ferry Creek, wherever there are these protracted situations and polarization where big industry is trying to get regulatory approval, Indigenous nations are oftentimes on the front lines uh, with the resistance along, t- along with the environmental movement. I'm wondering if you could speak to uh, what you see as the major concerns around resource extraction and development, both in terms of the federal government and the, the provincial government. What are your big issues that you're pushing with them or the ones that they seem to be not handling the files in a particularly good way?
2: Well, clearly, it's, uh, you know, it's an issue of racism. It's an issue of a colossal failure of leadership in that regard. Until that changes, you know, we're going to continue seeing what we're seeing out there in terms of conflict on the land. We need a genuine, truly progressive government that understands that we are in the midst of a climate crisis and it's having devastating impacts on our communities, on our people. And communities are burning to the ground. How many more communities have to be incinerated before governments will begin to move beyond good intentions and and rhetoric? When will they start to make actual significant investments in stewardship and protection And, and so on and so forth? The violence of policing will continue to escalate. It's only a matter of time until someone gets killed. And, you know, then we're going to see an abrupt escalation of the opposition to these projects. There's a lot of pent-up anger and resentment out there. I think it's ironic that Mr. Sonny Ways, Justin Trudeau, now can't even have a rally, and he's being chased around by mobs of people, you know, and they finally come to the realization that any commitments he makes, any promises he makes are absolutely worthless because he's um, a pathological liar. He has no intention on carrying forward any of these commitments, and we've witnessed that over the last six years. The only choice in this federal election is Jagmeet Singh. There's no question about that. We've been electing the Liberals or the Conservatives for 150 years, and our country's in a mess. And we need progressive leadership. We need leadership that has dialogue and the support of the younger generations. We need more inclusivity in government in regard to resource management decisions. And that's not possible with the tyranny of the status quo with Mr. O'Toole or Mr. Trudeau. So I'm hoping that young people, particularly young people who were always the vanguard of the revolution in years gone by, decades gone by, begin to stand up and find their voice and begin to speak out. You know, their children and their own grandchildren, their lives and their future depends on what actions we're preparing to take. The people at Ferry Creek desperately need support. You know, we need to replicate what happened at Cleoquit Sound in terms of thousands upon thousands of people converging on Ferry Creek to defend old growth forests. Otherwise, we're going to lose old growth forests. Grant Chief, I want to
1: ask you a question around the sort of the twin public health crises, both of the, the pandemic in terms of the impact and the government response and your, your thoughts on that. And, and secondly, you, you mentioned your son being affected by the contamination of the drug supply with fentanyl and carfentanyl, and uh, there's continues to be far too many deaths. It's almost triple, quadruple the deaths that were happening in the 90s around this. And if you could share your thoughts in terms of public health, both around the pandemic and around the continued devastating effects of the contamination of the the drug supply?
2: Well, that's a good question. The pandemic, I think, represents the beginning. I believe that there will be other pandemics in regard to different types of more lethal viruses. And What the government of Canada did in the face of the pandemic is they simply threw money at it. And they spent billions and billions of dollars. And at the end of the day, we find out that there is a significant hardcore element, a regressive element in this country that flat out refuses to be vaccinated. And, you know, we're seeing that. In those massive mobs outside hospitals. It's absolute insanity. When I witness, you know, this stupidity, this irresponsible and reckless behavior on so many people, it makes me want to go out into my backyard and start building an ark. (laughs) Because I believe we must be pretty close to the end with this insanity going on. But governments are too wimpy to pass legislation to make it truly mandatory you know for people to be properly and safely vaccinated you know that's the depth of the corruption the moral corruption in government they will do anything to regain power or to secure greater support from the public no matter how regressive the public is So, you know, uh, indigenous peoples were hit harder by the pandemic because of our atrocious housing conditions, overcrowding, lack of drinking water, you know, in spite of the Trudeau promises for forever of dealing with that issue. So uh, provincially, I think British Columbia, you know, has some success with the pandemic. But, you know, they succumb to the pressure from commerce and business. And that's always been the weakness of of all of our governments. You know, that's why we have the massive clear-cutting and things of that nature. You know, in many ways, it's the corporations that make the final determination on social and political policy and legislation, you know, which is wrong. It's absolutely wrong. It's, you know, it's literally killing us. The opioid crisis, as I mentioned earlier, we lost our son, Kenny, 42nd birthday. We were sending him text messages, you know, wishing him a happy birthday, and little did we know he was laying on a hotel room floor. He was dead. The medical examiner said he was he died before he hit the floor, and in Grand Prairie, which is the real hotbed for drug trade and and contaminated drugs. There's been a lot of fatalities in Grand Prairie. So it's personal to us. We have 15 grandchildren. Many of them are teenagers, you know, and and we're so terrified that they're gonna go out and, and not come back through the door. And I know there's thousands and millions of parents that go through the same nightmare. And there has to be greater focus on the opioid crisis from governments and that just doesn't happen you know they haven't been motivated yet to do the right thing and in regard to these and make the proper investments our medical system is collapsing around our ears. medical professionals frontline workers are burning out at an alarming rate these mobs outside hospitals are proving to be you know the the final straw. Many of them are resigning, and you know it's and governments stand idly by, twiddling their thumbs. You know um, we need a damn good revolution in this country, is what we need. We need hundreds of thousands of people in the streets to reclaim our country back. We can't depend on Trudeau or a tool to do that. Grant Chief, the,
1: the question I wanted to ask you was that for someone who's been involved for so long, five decades plus of organizing on the front lines, being a spokesperson, being at rallies, being so generous with your time with young people. I'm wondering what keeps you excited and motivated as you look ahead, because you've spent your whole life uh, doing this. What keeps you going and what are you excited about around the corner here, given all of these crises that we're facing simultaneously?
2: It's a genuine sense of unconditional love for the land and for the people. And, you know, that has always been our focus, uh, Joan and myself, and know and understand we hold the future of our grandchildren in our own two hands. And that we need to achieve everything humanly possible. And what we do not achieve, we leave behind for our grandchildren to take up the fight so there isn't a day that goes by that we don't look at our grandchildren and hear their laughter and you know their sense of assertiveness and holding their heads up high and being proud of who they are we both know we have to continue to do the right thing we know there's a lot of amazing people out there that have similar views similar values and all we need is leadership, and I call on all people to stand up and claim the leadership within themselves and to understand that day should not go by without doing one thing to defend the land and the people in regard to these uh, crises that are confronting us at this point in our history. Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, thank
1: you so much for joining us on Below the Radar.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: This has been our conversation with Grand Chief Stuart Phillip and the final installment of our Climate Justice and Inequality series. You can find links to the organizations that Grand Chief Stuart Phillip has been involved in as well as the transcript of this episode in the show notes below. Thank you for tuning in to our Climate Justice and Inequality series. If you haven't already, you can listen back to our previous installments with our guests CoSilem, Anjali Apatari, Mark Lee, and Eugene Kung. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Below the Radar.